It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. One of my all-time favorite things to do in Bible study is to read the Old Testament and just see the revelation of Jesus Christ on every page of Scripture. Well, I'm so excited because today we're actually going to be diving in to the Word of God and looking at how do you see Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, in the last episode, we talked about this overview, but today we're going to be jumping into Joshua chapter 3 and looking at Jesus in this incredible passage. Now, before we get into the message, I just want to freshly remind you that our fall five-week classic training starts on September 5th. I would highly encourage you to consider joining us for this fall training. It's going to be an incredible opportunity to dive into God's Word, to study it together, and to learn how to live out the Christian life with triumph and victory. Well, again, everything starts September 5th, and to learn more, you can go to ellersley.com forward slash daily And there's some links there where it'll take you to the information. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to join me in Joshua chapter three, as we look at this incredible passage of crossing the Jordan river. Well, we've been walking through a little mini series, uh, talking about Jesus in the old Testament and just seeing this thread of redemption kind of weave itself through. And so on Tuesday, we were starting to walk through the overarching concept of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament and the fact that every every page of this book points to one key character, one main person, which is Jesus himself, which is just phenomenally marvelous. Uh, What I want to do today, if you have your Bibles, uh, I want to look at Joshua chapter 3 and 4 and uh, give you one of my favorite, uh, what we typically call Christophanies around here, but uh, just seeing Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. Again, we're kind of in this special series because of the Ellerslie online training that we just started. So if you haven't signed up for that, we'd encourage you to do that. Um, But just for this next month, we're going to be kind of taking a pause from all of our other studies uh, and walking through Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, In Joshua chapter 3, it's a phenomenal passage. Uh, The Israelites have obviously got out of Egypt. They've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. They're just now on the brink of entering into the promised land. Uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has died and given this great commission to Moses, saying, hey, jo- or, sorry, Moses gave the commission to Joshua, saying, Joshua, hey, uh, you're going to lead this thing, and so move forward, and this is going to be exciting. Uh, in Joshua chapter 1 and 2, uh, God <coughs> is speaking to Joshua, oh, sorry, chapter 1, and basically giving the same commission that God had given Moses, God gives Joshua, and basically this phrase of be strong and courageous shows up over and over and over again. Uh, in chapter 2, uh, Joshua sends the spies over to Jericho, the first place that they're going to encounter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And of course, they spy out the land, which we're going to look at in a future study, which is probably one of my all-time favorite uh, pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. But as you come into chapter 3, here they are. They're, they're on the brink of the Jordan River. They're about to enter into the Promised Land. This is the first time in 400 years that the Israelites are entering back into the land that God has promised them. So, I mean, I, I'm imagining the expectation is, is just off the charts. I'm sure the, just the excitement is just like, man, we're, we're almost there. In fact, you can see the land. It's just separated by this big river, right, the Jordan River. And so what I want to do is I just want to read chapter 3, uh, and it's not that long, <clears throat> just to kind of set the stage, and then I want to talk about just a beautiful way we see Jesus in this passage. 
Now, again, just for clarity's sake, I mentioned this last time, but this is all historical. This actually happened. So though we're going to be looking for Jesus in that sense, right, we want to make sure we look at it first in its historical and its actual, the context of which it's given. Uh, but Joshua chapter 3, <clears throat> uh, it says, In the morning Joshua got up early. Then he and all the children of Israel set out from Shittim and came to Jordan. They stayed there before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp. They commanded the people, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levite priest carrying it, then you shall set out from where you are and go behind it. There must be a distance of 2,000 cubits, or about 3,000 feet, uh, between you and it. Do not draw closer to it in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. <clears throat> then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will perform wondrous deeds among you. So Joshua said to the priests, Pick up the Ark of the Covenant and proceed ahead of the people. So they picked up the Ark of the Covenant and went in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to honor you in the sight of all of Israel, so that they may know that just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the bank of the Jordan, stand still in the river. Verse 9, So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Draw near and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will thoroughly drive out the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the, the Pezerites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites from before you. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now select twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man per tribe. When the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, touch the water of the Jordan, the water of the Jordan that flows from upstream will be cut off and piled up. When the people set out from their tents to cross over the Jordan, the priests were carrying the ark of the covenant before the people. And when the carriers of the ark came to the Jordan, the feet of the priests carrying the ark dipped into the edge of the water. Now the Jordan overflows its banks all the days of the harvest. Verse 16. Then the water that flows down from upstream stood still and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, a city beside Zarethan. The water that flows down toward the Dead Sea stopped and was cut off. The people crossed over opposite Jericho, and the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, and all of Israel crossed over on dry ground until the entire people completed crossing over the Jordan. Wow, I love that story. <clears throat> so you gotta get this gotta get this picture. Uh, here they are, they've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. They finally get to the banks on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. And so there's this expectancy, there's excitement. Oh, you know, here, here's the day, today's the day. But we know that it's uh, it says in verse 15, this is the days of the harvest. So we know that, hey, there's a problem here. And the key problem that's going on in the passage is the fact that not only is the Jordan River in the middle of the way, the Jordan River is overflowing. So the Jordan River has expanded. This thing has increased. Now you got to get in the mind of a Jew. Water to the mind of a Jew in this culture was a symbol of chaos and destruction. That all goes back to the Genesis 1 idea. So here's God. He speaks in the middle of the waters, right, which was full of chaos and destruction. And he brought creation out of that destruction. So <clears throat> even up into the time of Jesus, the mind of a Jew was is that water was symbolic of the chaos. Water was symbolic of the the, the Sheol idea, that it was the entrance into death, all that kind of stuff. So if you can imagine, there's a huge problem 
in front of the Israelites. And the, it's the fact that <clears throat> here we are, we're on the opposite shore of the promised land. We need to get into the promised land. But there's this massive river. Now, the likelihood most scholars tell us is that most of them did not know how to swim. And so the idea is, well, if the, if the Jordan River had overflowed, it's not that you just have this little stream that you can just kind of cross over. You have this massive river that you now have to pass. Likely, the scholars tell us that at, at the time of the overflow of the harvest, right, the, the, the Jordan River even likely had rapids. I mean, this, this was a, a moving, this is a river. So if you could imagine, how on earth are we going to cross this thing? Right? We, have, we have, you know, several million Israelites plus all the herds and all this kind of stuff. How, how are we going to get into the promised land? Oh, we can build a bridge. Well, that's a problem because in this part of Israel, there's no trees. Right? You're out in the middle of the wilderness, in the, in the desert. So well, let's throw a bunch of rocks. And maybe we can build them high enough and get a... See, it's going to be difficult. So God says, here, i got a plan for you. I want you to take the ark of the Lord, and when the Levites come to the bank of the river and they step into the river... I will stop the rivers. Again, it's all reminiscent of the whole Red Sea crossing thing that happened 40 years previously. And so, of course, you know, as, as we just read, Joshua commands the people, hey, get ready, consecrate yourself, today's the day, right? And they, they all get ready. And it says that when the priests, uh, verse 15, they came to the Jordan, and when the feet of the priests carrying the ark dipped, the, uh, dipped into the edge of the water, right, the water that flows down upstream stood still. Now, I just, uh, verse, uh, where is it at? Um, well, let's look, look at verse 16. <clears throat> There's this amazing detail that Joshua gives us that I think is so profound. It's in, it's in verse 16. He says that the water that flows from upstream stood still and rose up in a heap, heap from this town called Adam, and the water that flows down toward the Sea of Arabah, or the Dead Sea. So imagine this thought. Here is this river that's flowing. Of course, we know that it goes all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it actually goes up further than that. But the, the water that God stopped ceased from this town called Adam, and it stopped all the way down to the Dead Sea. Now, we know that where they were crossing, where, where Joshua and the Israelites were crossing, was near the Dead Sea. It's right across from Jericho. But isn't it interesting that Joshua adds the comment or the little nuance that the water stopped to this, from this place called Adam, this town called Adam. So the water that was flowing from Adam down to the Dead Sea has ceased. Now, how did it cease? Oh, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the water. Now, I don't know if you're starting to see a glimmer of Jesus in all this. Now, again, is this historical? Yes. Did this actually happen? Yes. But again, everything that's happening in this book is pointing to the greater reality of Jesus and the cross. Uh, it's interesting when you look and study the Ark of the Covenant, uh, we know that, you know, it's this small box, you know, about three feet long or so. It was carried by the priest. It always sat in the Holy of Holies. When you actually get into that, which we don't have time for this morning, but if you get into it, it's amazing how incredible the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus Christ. Of course, the mercy seat sits, uh, sits upon it, right? It's a picture of this heavenly realm thing. It's the authority, and it's all about the presence of God. In fact, when you look in the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the three items that was in the Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, Aaron's rod that budded, the jar of manna, and the Ten Commandments, even all three of those point to the reality of Jesus Christ. He is the almond branch that buds. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. He is the perfection of the law. He is the completion of it. 
And it's amazing that as you continue through, of course, every time they had a battle, you always took the Ark of the Covenant and it went out first in the battle. Why? Because it's a symbol that God was fighting for us. So it's not that the Ark was God. We understand that. But it was a picture. It was an incredible picture of the very presence of the Lord, which is why we carry it around everywhere. Why? Because it's a symbol. It's a reminder of his very presence. Why is it sitting in the Holy of Holies? Because, hey, that's where God dwells. It's that kind of an idea. So imagine this. Here are the priests carrying this ark, which is symbolic of the presence of God himself. When the presence of God steps in the middle of that river, something happens. Well, what happens? Well, the waters stop. Well, where do the waters cease from? Oh, from a place called Adam to a place called the Dead Sea. Uh, the verse that I was looking for earlier, I think it was verse, uh, verse 11. I love this. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11 in Joshua it says, see, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. That, isn't it interesting that here is the presence of God who is going to go before you and is going to make the way in the middle of this river issue. Now, think about this. This is so amazing and profound to me. Again, verse 16, the water stood in a very high heap at a town called Adam. There was something running, flowing from this place called Adam that only led to one location, the Dead Sea. Do you know what that is? Sin. There's something that starts at Adam. And we know that geographically, right, the, the Jordan River goes far further up than this town called Adam. But when the water ceases, it's, amazing, it's an amazing detail that Here's this thing that is flowing from Adam and that which flows from Adam and only leads to one place, the Dead Sea. It leads to death. When the presence of God steps into the middle of that, that which flows from Adam and goes to death stops. Isn't that a profound thought? Good morning. I'm excited, sorry. Everyone's just like, mm, that's good. <laughs> I think that's phenomenal. Uh, when you go back to the uh, Genesis 3 account, of course, you're, here's Adam and Eve, and they, they take the fruit and they eat the fruit. You realize at that point, death enters the scene, that the sin issue. In fact, in a Romans chapter 5, listen to this. This is, this, is, this is amazing. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5 about this Adam and the death thing. Uh, he says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death has spread to all men, because all have sinned. Then he says in verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's sin, who was a type of him who was to come. And as you follow that down through, what you begin to hear is, here is one man, and because of one man, sin entered into that line of humanity. And yet, because of one man, Jesus, we now have righteousness that is stopping the death. Isn't that an amazing reality? So you see that being played out here in Joshua chapter 3. That, that here, here's, here's the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the presence of God. And when the presence of God steps into the middle of the river, that which has been flowing all this time from this place called Adam that only leads to one location, death, ceases. I think that is so profound. And again, it is the presence of the Lord that is making a way into the promise. Again, verse, uh, verse, verse 11 See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Do you know what Jesus has done for us? He is the forerunner. He is the one who has passed through death 
so that we might enter into the promise. Well, what's the promise? The Christian life. It's the life of the Spirit, it, it, which we don't have time to get into. But, man, if you ever listen to Sandy McConaughey, she's always talking about the, the promise, the promise, the promise. Well, what's the promise? Life. What's the promise? The Holy Spirit. What's the promise? Well, the promise of the Father that Jesus consistently talked about in the Gospels was demonstrated in evidence in Acts chapter 2. And isn't it an amazing reality that Jesus was the forerunner of this whole thing, that he walked through the death so that I might experience life. And that which has always been flowing from Adam and has only ever led to death, somehow even in my life, when the presence of God steps in the middle of my life, that which starts at Adam and leads to death stops. That he begins to create this freedom and this victory in my life. Why? Because I'm no longer shackled to that sin stuff. In fact, if you've been with us in the Ephesians study, uh, we've been talking about that. Uh, let me just read you a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we've been talking about <clears throat> this overwhelming reality of the power of God. And Paul says, listen, this is so neat in, in light of this context. Ephesians 2.1. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we also once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Hey, you were dead, spiritually, says Paul, that there was this thing flowing in your life from Adam that started at Adam. And again, you can't blame Adam because, hey, <laughs> we, yes, we have the sin nature, but we have purposely sinned. I mean, we have shook, shook our fist in rebellion at God. So, hey, you can't get out of this one. But there's this thing flowing in your life, starting at Adam, and it only leads to death. Hey, for the wages of sin is death, says Paul in Romans. That there is this payment of sin. And just like your employer, you know, you go down to your job, and you work for a couple weeks, and you go to your employer and say, hey, I need a paycheck. And you demand your wages. Do you realize that whether you demand them or not, there is a wage that is always paid with sin? And what is the wage? Death. So in your life, Paul says, there is this deadness because of the sin and the trespass, and there's this, been, there's this thing flowing all the way from Adam, all the way that leads just to death. But then he says in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. You realize that something has stepped into the middle of your death, Something has come right in the middle of your trespass. Something has come in the middle of your rebellion. What is that? God himself. And when God, this but God thing, when God steps right into the middle of your life, in the middle of your death, in the middle of your rebellion, that which has always flown out of you that only leads to one place, death, stops. Why? Because he has made you alive. And he's done away with this death thing. And he's caused this life to be within you so that you do not have to live as you've always lived. That there's this new victory, this new triumph. Why? For by grace you have been saved. So again, as you come back to this Joshua passage, I think it is so phenomenal that as you get into this, it is, I don't think it's by accident. Again, I'm confident it's not by accident. That what's happening in the passage is a picture, it's a, it is a shadow of the greater reality that's going to happen in Jesus Christ. That what you see happening, playing on the stage of Joshua chapter 3 in the Jordan River, is this picture, it's a hint of the reality of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
that, hey, when the, when, the, when the presence of God steps into the middle of the river, it just it cannot remain the same. Isn't that a great news for us? That that which has always flown out of our life stops? Now, it's interesting, if you want to take it one step further, in chapter 4, <clears throat> Joshua, uh, as, as the Israelites are walking through, Joshua has 12 of the Israelites, one from each tribe, pick up a stone from the riverbed. And uh, well, they actually have two clumps. One they put in the river, and then the one they put on the, the side, side of the river. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 4, So that this will be a sign among you. And when your children ask, what do these stones mean? You will answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it is crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones will be a memorial for the children of Israel continually. Isn't it interesting that the what God did there at the Jordan River was represented by this pillar of stones on the side of the river? And so here's this memorial stack. And of course, you know, as, as the Israelites were be passing through, the kids would be like, hey, what's that big pile of stones? Because, hey, we know that wasn't there by accident. They just don't clump like that. And so the parents would go, oh, let, let me tell you the story. Yeah, we were in the wilderness and, you know, God made a way for us to get out of the wilderness. And he crossed, just as he crossed the Red Sea, he allowed us to cross the Jordan River. And it was a memorial, it was a, re, it was a reminder of the powerful work of God in the life of the Israelites. It's interesting, I came across the quote when I was studying the Ephesians 2 thing by uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he says, if you want to understand the overwhelming power of God, you've got to recognize what God has done in your life to pull you, or what he's pulled you out of, which shows the power of God. In other words, it's not that we delight in our past, because we don't want to delight in our past. It's not that we, we go, woo, uh, you know, let me tell you about the, the, the horrible things of my past. We don't, we don't do that as Christians. But it is important for us to remember what he has done in our life. That I actually think it's really important that there is this pile of memorial stones in our, in our lives that we can rehearse the overwhelming reality of God. See, we should never grow passive in our spiritual life about what God has brought us out of. That there should always be this thankfulness. There should always be this joy. There should always be this sense of wonder and awe of, do you know what God has done in my life? There was this, there was this river flowing from my life that only led to death, but God stepped into the middle of that thing, and I am not the same. That there's this great testimony that when someone looks at your life, they just go, I, I don't understand how you are living. Oh, let me tell you the story about what God has done in my life. It's not that we want to highlight the evil or the sin or the junk. That We're not interested in that. We don't want to highlight evil. We want to highlight Jesus. But if you really want to highlight Jesus, somehow you've got to show just the sin that he has brought you out of. Does that make any sense? So again, I, I, don't, th hey, I don't want to highlight this. I don't want to celebrate this. I don't want to, I don't want to revel in this. I don't even want to think about this in, in one sense. But yet, when I begin to recognize what God has done in my life, I should celebrate the fact that I'm not there anymore, that I have crossed over into the promised land. And, oh, look, there's this memorial stones. Here's a question for you. Do you have memorial stones in your life to remind you of the overwhelming reality and power of God and all that he has done in you? And I don't know what that looks like practically, but <clears throat> and, I, and I don't mean like actually grab some stones. You could, I guess, but you know. But there should be something in your life, whether it be journals or, or a picture or, or just some way that you could rehearse that, wow, look at what God has done in my life, that I am not the same, that my identity has changed. It's that 2 Corinthians 5.17 idea that, that, 
hey, the old has passed away, the new has come. There's been a line drawn in the sand and I've stepped over this line and that the only way you can talk about the new reality that I have in Jesus is I am a new creature, I am a new creation, that I am not the same that I once was. That God has done this incredible reality that, yeah, that was horrible back then, but that's not even me. I mean, this, this is me. Why? Jesus. I think we need that. If nothing else, we need the reminder that, wow, God has done a lot of work in our life. Let me just give you a couple quick passages just to remind you of what he has done in light of all this. I love these. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far, he, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38, 17. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. You have cast all my sins behind your back. The idea is that God is not looking at your sin. He's not looking at your past. Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I, even I am he, who blots or wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that a great promise? That God is not holding our past over us. God is not holding our sin over us. That, in fact, he says, I'm not going to even remember them, which I don't know how that works, but that's incredible. Uh, Nehemiah 9, 17. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake us. Daniel 9, 9. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, even though we have rebelled against him. Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion upon us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Of course, I say this all the time, but I love Corey Tim Boom's quote on this. She says, the Lord has cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea, and then he plants a little sign that says, no fishing allowed. I love that. Do you recognize what God has done in your life? He has radically, radically changed you. That if you are a Christian, you are not the same. You are, you, you, you are not filled with this death thing. In fact, in the Ephesians 2 passage, the whole thing is in this past context of this is not who you are because the but God has taken place in your life and you're in this new reality in Jesus. Are you living in that? And if you are living in that, would you allow him to freshly remind you today of his glory and grace and grandeur and supply and just his marvelous reality of what he has yanked you out of, that he has stepped in the middle of your death. Or as Romans says, that while I was still living in rebellion, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That is in the middle of my death. It was in the middle of my tragedy. It was in the middle of my sin and transgression that Jesus stepped right in the middle of that thing. And that which has always been flowing from Adam unto death stops because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I think that is a beautiful picture in the Old Testament of the reality of Jesus and the new. Let us live in that reality afresh today. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, thank you that that which is, has been flowing from Adam, and there's only one place for that to go, death, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. That you so graciously want to step in the middle of our death and bring forth life. And that even though sin and transgression and death and destruction and damnation describe our lives, that, that, that we do not have to live in that. That we can experience a but God and, and we can experience life in you. You who made us alive for by grace we have been saved. Lord, I just pray that we would live in that reality today. 
Lord, I pray that you would freshly remind us of the great work you've done upon the cross. That even just this shadow in the Old Testament is a phenomenal declaration of what you are longing to do in every person. And Lord, I pray that we would at some, somehow, some way, have a memorial to celebrate you. Not, not so that we can dwell upon the sin. Not just so that you know, we can get wrapped up in all the junk. But Lord, I pray that there would be these stones of remembrance in our, in our lives. That we would, when we see them, we, we would recall to mind your overwhelming grace, kindness, love, goodness, and power in our lives. In fact, Jesus, may we be reminded every day of what you have done because I, I'm so convinced that when we see all that you have done and all that you are doing in our lives, <clears throat> we just cannot help but stand in awe. We cannot help but praise you. We cannot help but love you more. So Lord, would you increase our affection and our love, our, our passion, our drive for you because we're seeing just a constant reminder of just your goodness, of your grace, of your grandeur, and of your glory. Lord, we do love you. Thank you for all that you're doing in these days and all that you're doing in us and through us. And we just want to declare that you are good, that your mercies endure forever, that your faithfulness is new every day. Lord, we love you. Just give the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen.
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.